Hi, this is a message from Dr. Zaid Fadul, President of the Maricopa County Medical Society's Board of Directors. MCMS is unabashedly in favor of physicians. We will work hard to ensure all physicians have a voice in the future of healthcare in the Valley. Dr. Fadul's goals for 2023 are twofold. One, to rebuild the social fabric and camaraderie of the local medical community. Make friends, connect with others for referrals, and support one another for research and improvements in clinical care. Second, to increase the value of membership. We want to help you to save money, learn about changes in healthcare, and leverage the medical society as a help desk throughout your career. So please join us on this journey. Here are a few ways that you can participate. Host a social event at your practice, clinic, or hospital. Get interviewed for our Arizona Physician Magazine. Share your story on this Arizona Physician Podcast. Tell us what discounts or member benefits you would like to receive. And volunteer for a committee. If you're interested in helping MCMS, then please email us. Send a short message to mcms at mcmsonline.com or call us at 602-252-2015. Thank you. And they say, listen, I've tried everything over the counter. What else can I do? And so in the, as an allergist, you know, there are things that I can recommend that are prescription medications. Um, but of course, we love to be able to get to the root of the problem and get rid of the allergy. And that's where allergy immunotherapy comes into play. Hi, and welcome to the Arizona Physician Podcast. My name is John McElligot. And our guest today is Dr. Claudia Gafke of the Allergy Asthma Clinic. Dr. Gafke is a proud Bearcat. She completed her BS degree with a major in physiology and a minor in psychology at University of Arizona, where she graduated magna cum laude. She obtained her MD degree from University of Arizona College of Medicine, Tucson, and then her residency in internal medicine at UVA College of Medicine. Following her residency training, Dr. Gafke completed her fellowship in allergy and immunology at the University of South Florida. She has authored publications in the field and participated in clinical research. During her fellowship training at USF, she was a sub-investigator in several clinical trials with an emphasis on atopic dermatitis and oral immunotherapy for children with peanut allergy. She is passionate about all aspects of allergy, asthma, and immunology. And she spends lots of time with her family going on hikes with the dog, boat trips, ballroom dancing, and visiting animal sanctuaries and gardens. And she's also fluent in Spanish. So welcome to the show, Dr. Gafke. Thank you so much for having me, John. I appreciate it. It was good to include some information about you in the Arizona Physician Magazine. And I think this interview is uh, a deeper dive into food allergies. Um, and some information that you can share with our listening audience, um, most of whom are physicians, about what that entails and some guidance that you can provide to your colleagues today. So I wonder if we can start at the beginning by sharing an overview of the immunological process for the body's response to allergens. What's that all about? Yes, of course. So 
when I talk about food allergies, um, I think sometimes it's easier to clarify that for this discussion, I will refer to them as the IgE-mediated or immediate reaction. Um, there are several things that can happen when you ingest foods. Some of them are immunological, but there can be delayed processes that do not lead to anaphylaxis. So for the purpose of today's session, I think I will refer to food allergies as the ones that can lead potentially to anaphylaxis. Um, so talking about how does that happen? Sensitization to food allergens can happen in the GI tract or sometimes even when in contact with inflamed skin, particularly in young infants, such as those that have atopic dermatitis, and sometimes can happen from sensitization from inhaling allergens, such as pollen, and that is in the case of pollen food allergy syndrome. Um, typically, when your GI tract or your immune system comes in contact with a protein in the food, um, you create tolerance towards it, but sometimes that doesn't happen or sometimes you can lose that tolerance and then you end up with this food allergy. Mainly what happens is you can develop a specific antibody called IgE uh, to this particular food. And then this IgE antibody to this particular food will go ahead and find this very high, um, this receptor that will lead to activation of mast cells and basophils mostly. And then you end up with the cells opening up and releasing a lot of chemicals such as histamine. And that's when you have the reactions that most people think of as food allergies that can vary from nausea to vomiting, uh, trouble breathing, urticaria, and lastly, you know, in the worst case scenario, you end up with anaphylaxis and that can involve cardiovascular and respiratory collapse. But what I think is very important to emphasize in food allergy is that typically this process happens within minutes to a couple of hours. Um, unless we're talking about mammalian meats, which can, this reaction can potentially happen with mammalian meats in up to four to six hours later. And even in the case of the pollen allergy syndrome, the pollen food allergy syndrome, you also have immediate reactions to the ingested protein. Um, and I think that's a very important uh, point because there are other food uh, things, you know, bad things that can happen when you eat foods that are delayed. And even though they have their own set of comorbidities, they may not lead to life-threatening mechanisms such as anaphylaxis. Thank you very much. And you mentioned a couple of terms there, food allergy, namely, but also food tolerance or food intolerance. And there may be some confusion about what those terms mean. So what would you say is the difference between food allergy and food intolerance? Yes, um, thank you. So basically, food allergy involves these IgE antibodies that bind to this high affinity receptor on the mast cells, basophils mostly, and they lead to this immediate reaction. And when I say immediate, is within minutes to a few hours. And this can be life threatening. And then we have um, food intolerance 
or sometimes people refer to them as food sensitivities and some other food reactions that are immunological processes. So when I think about food reactions, I like to try and separate them into three groups. We have food allergy, which is what we were just talking about. Then we have this immunologically mediated processes that can happen with food ingestion and can lead to delayed symptoms, um, such as eosinophilic esophagitis, um, celiac disease. We have food protein-induced enterocolitis. And these can be debilitating. They can have several comorbidities, but they're delayed typically. And so you wouldn't have to worry about going into anaphylaxis from them or immediately you know, having a life-threatening event. And lastly, the third group is food intolerance. And um, food intolerance typically are things like lactose intolerance or non-celiac gluten intolerance. And this last category is the, the one that is most common among the U.S. population is non-life-threatening. Um, and you have very uncomfortable um, symptoms. You can have bloating, you can have abdominal discomfort, you can have diarrhea, but these are not associated with other concerning local or systemic symptoms. They're typically self-resolving and how badly you react sometimes can also depend on the amount of that food that you ingested. And also, I think I should also touch base on Sometimes the, the inherent factors within a food that can lead to issues, for instance, um, scumbroid uh, fish poisoning. If you don't handle that particular fish properly, it can be full with histamine and then you end up with a histamine mediated process that is not necessarily um, due to a fish allergy. And then you have things, you know, like salmonella and shigella and campylobacter that happen when the food is not cooked or stored properly. And you have pharmacological properties of certain foods like um, coffee. Um, so for instance, caffeine can lead to, you know, an increased heart rate. It can lead to diarrhea. People start feeling shaky. And that's just part of the chemical structure of what happens with caffeine in your body. Then we have tyramine in H cheeses, which can lead to flushing and um, whatnot. So I like to, when I talk to patients and they come with questions about foods, I like to separate it into those three categories. Food allergy, which typically leads to anaphylaxis if there's no intervention. And then we have the immunological processes like EOE. And lastly, we have food intolerances. They're not life-threatening, nevertheless, bothersome and should also be addressed. Okay. Yeah, it's good to understand those three buckets. What are the gold standards for testing that are available for food allergies? Yes. So for food allergy, if we think about how it works, we discussed that it's an IgE-mediated reaction. Therefore, the correct um, and the gold standard test for food allergy is, a, is to check the level of IgE specific to that food. Um, and this can be done via skin testing, which is what we do a lot, you know, in the allergy clinic or blood testing. Skin testing allows for near immediate results. So that's very nice. You know, within 30 minutes, you have answers. Um, and so it's important to emphasize because food allergies and is an IgE mediated process, 
checking for other antibodies like IgG to a specific food is really not helpful in the setting of evaluating for food allergy. Uh, low concentrations of serum IgG, IgM, and IgA, which are other antibodies in your immune system, that are specific to certain foods are commonly found in normal individuals. For example, if we look at infants, um, when you first introduce them to cow's milk, their serum levels of the milk protein specific IgG antibody, they do rise over the first month. They achieve a peak level within a few months and then they slowly come down. So there can be some adults that can still have IgG levels uh, to cow's milk, for example, and that does not mean that they have a food allergy. And in fact, there are some individuals with inflammatory gastrointestinal diseases, such as IBS or celiac, and they can have um, food-specific IgG and IgM antibodies. And this does not mean that they're allergic to specific food to which they have this IgG or IgM antibody, but I think of it more of a, a memory of that food per se. So you just have increased gastrointestinal permeability to the food antigens, and they reflect that um, with the IgG and IgM. And so sometimes when patients come to see me and they had IgG testing down for a particular food, I think the, the easiest way for me to explain it to them is, well, yes, this means that maybe at some point you ate this food, but it doesn't really reflect your ability to to have IgE bind to a mast cell or a basophil or another allergy cell, release histamine, and end up being anaphylaxis. Wow, you're definitely an allergy detective to try to <laughs> tease that apart. Um, we'll take a short break uh, in a second, but I want to ask you this, this question before the break. What would you say are the most common food allergies in children and adults? And um, in general, how does that change over someone's life? Yeah, so there's a little bit of a difference. First of all, children have a bit more of a risk of having a food allergy as compared to adults in the U.S. Um, the food allergy prevalence is about 8% of U.S. children under the age of five do have a food allergy. And adults is a little less. It's about, if you count all of them, about 4%. And in children, the most common allergens are cow's milk egg, soybean, wheat, peanut, tree nut, fish, and shellfish. Um, most allergies to cow's milk, egg, soy, wheat are outgrown um, by age about 16, whereas allergies to peanut, tree nuts, seeds, and seafood, they tend to persist into adulthood. So for instance, for peanut, you have about a 20% chance of outgrowing by the age 16 and tree nut about 10%. Food allergy in adults is less common. Um, for instance, uh, adults with a peanut and tree nut allergies, about 1% to 2%. Um, seafood allergies a little bit higher, about 2%, um, 3%. So the overall food allergy for adults is about 4%. Most commonly, I see um, shellfish as being a very common food allergen in adults. And talking about this pollen food allergy syndrome, about 16% of young adults can present with that. So that's a much higher percentage. Okay, thank you. I've got some relatives who love shellfish, but they're allergic to them. Yeah. So <laughs> it's, it's unfortunate, but uh, I, I see how that has a big impact. 
Um, Dr. Gaffke, we'll take a short break and then come back and, and talk about allergens that are here in the desert. Interested in CME, patient and professional referrals, networking and connecting with other physicians across the valley, want to be highlighted in our Arizona Physician Magazine and podcast, or interested in exclusive discounts for your next vacation? At MCMS, we offer all of the above to fit your needs as a physician. Join us now. For more info, check us out at mcmsonline.com or give us a call today at 602-252-2015. Welcome back to the Arizona Physician Podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Claudia Gafke of the Allergy Asthma Clinic. Let's talk about Arizona specifically. And this population, certainly here in the Valley, is considered a desert. Um, There's some different ecosystems around the state, but generally pretty dry. What would you say are the most common environmental allergens that are found here in the desert? Yes, thank you. So most people think of the desert as not having too many variety of plants, but that's actually not the case. We have several allergenic um, pollens here. If we look at trees, um, we have the Palo Verde tree, very allergenic, unfortunately, olive, Arizona ash, cottonwood. Then as far as our grasses go, Bermuda grass, Johnson, Bahia are also very prevalent. And we have several weeds that are allergenic. If I had to pick one that is very allergenic, I would pick ragweed. That's a very common allergen um, here in the valley. As the population has grown, and more developments have sprung up. Have you seen changes over time? Do you know the data uh, about whether those allergens have grown in in size and scope, or have they, you know, just shifted from one type of plant to another over the years? Yes, there has been a change because we are now dealing with, of course, our native plants that can be allergenic, but also when people bring other kinds of plants that are not native to Arizona, you know, to for landscaping um, that can be allergenic. That has definitely changed how we see allergies here. Uh, we have beautiful golf courses that are full of grass, and they may be grass that is native to here, but they may also have some northern grass. And that also has changed how allergies are playing a role. And additionally, not speaking necessarily about pollen, but for instance, in Phoenix, um, we have a lot of dust mite allergy. Even though it's a very dry climate, dust mites usually tend to really grow in humid, but also very hot climates. Phoenix is very dusty. So I'm seeing a lot of patients that are not only having a hard time with pollen allergy, but also with dust mite allergy. Okay. Yeah, I, I found out. Um that I'm allergic to mesquite among many others. Mm-hmm. And our neighbor has this beautiful mesquite tree right next to us. So I love the shade that we get from it, but um, yeah, my, and the dog. Uh, I found that the dog is <laughs> sneezing sometimes too. Yeah, that's too bad. But thankfully we have allergy shots now nowadays. I'm a huge animal lover. So one of the things that I absolutely love in clinic 
is when patients come in and they love their animals and they say, well, you know, I love my animal, but I'm sneezing and I'm coughing and I feel so miserable. And it's, it's so wonderful when you put them on allergy shots. And then, you know, a year after they say, oh my gosh, I was, I, I was able to hug my bunny. I'm able to pet my dog and I don't feel like I'm dying. So it can be very rewarding nowadays that we can do something about it. That's great. I want to get to that um, in a second. But first, um, there are a lot of over-the-counter allergy medications. What are some of the pharmaceutical options available to patients? And do you often see patients who try something on their own and then come to you and say, oh, it either didn't work or, you know, they just went down the wrong path? Yes, yes. So I see this very commonly, of course, when you suffer from environmental allergies, the first thing that you do is, you know, go to the pharmacy, see if you can get some relief there. Um, so over-the-counter medications very commonly used are nasal steroids, nasal antihistamines, oral antihistamines, oral decongestant, topical decongestants. Um, unfortunately, they although they, they may help, and in some instances they do help, they may not fully relieve the symptoms. And that's many a times when patients come to see me and they say, listen, I've tried everything over the counter. What else can I do? And so in the, as an allergist, you know, there are things that I can recommend that are prescription medications. Um, but of course, we love to be able to get to the root of the problem and get rid of the allergy. And that's where allergy immunotherapy comes into play. Okay. And let's talk about that now. Um, so some patients we know opt for the allergy testing, do the skin testing, for example. What does that process entail of doing not only the testing, but then the follow-up regimen for the shots? Got it. So for allergy testing in the clinic, we do what we, people refer to as skin testing. So we have the prick puncture test and the intradermal test. In the prick puncture test, uh, the purified allergen or allergens are placed on the skin, are introduced into the skin, um, into the epidermis with this almost plastic-like device. And um, in the intradermal method, the purified allergen is injected into the dermis with a hypodermic syringe and needle. And then we have results within 30 minutes approximately to everything that the patient is sensitized to. And so allergy immunotherapy comes into play because once we have the results for that and we know what somebody is allergic to, and then we can go ahead and start treating it. So allergy immunotherapy is very effective um, for seasonal and perennial allergic rhinitis. The, I think the principal advantage of allergy immunotherapy over pharmacotherapy is that generally it's more efficacious. Um, it is often permanent or at least very long-term. Um, and a strong case can be made that over a long-term process, allergy immunotherapy might be more cost-effective. Um, so basically, once we know what it is that somebody is allergic to, then tailor vials containing this type of allergens are made. And slowly, increasing concentration of these allergens are introduced into the patient via an injection to create tolerance against these allergens. So um, going back to the science of it, when you do allergy immunotherapy, you are decreasing this specific IgE to a particular allergen over time. And so we have what we call this buildup phase where we slowly increase the doses and 
then eventually you get to what we call the maintenance uh, dose, which is the highest dose that you can achieve. And from that point on, we start, you know, doing allergy immunotherapy on average about every three, four weeks. The buildup phase, um, you have to come to the clinic a bit more often to get to that maintenance dose. And that's how allergy immunotherapy works. You know, um, it's very effective over the course of time. Patients start to notice first, the first thing that I hear is I'm not having to use my medications as much. So that's usually the first sign. Um, I'm not having to use as much of my nasal spray or my oral antihistamine. And then slowly after that, I have patients that say, hey, I'm spending more time outdoors and I'm able to hike and walk and I'm not sneezing. I'm, I'm able to pet my dog, to hug my bunny and I'm fine. I don't feel like I'm dying. Um, and that's how allergy immunotherapy works basically. Basically, we're building your tolerance. So when you are exposed to this allergen out in the world, you don't respond in such a dramatic way. And eventually you don't respond at all. That is the goal. Today, our guest is Dr. Claudia Gafke of the Allergy Asthma Clinic. And if you'd like to connect with Dr. Gafke and her team, go online to allergyasthmaclinicltd.com. Dr. Gafke, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It was great chatting. This production is brought to you by Maricopa County Medical Society. MCMS is increasing value for physicians throughout the valley. For more info, check out mcmsonline.com or simply give us a call at 602-252-2015. Helping physicians be the best they can be.